Section 4, Book 1, Part 4 of The Histories by Publius Cornelius Tacitus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Julie van Walchem. The Histories by Publius Cornelius Tacitus. Translated by Alfred John Church and William Jackson Brodrip. Book One, January to March, eighty sixty nine, Part Four. The Lingonis, following an old custom, had sent presents to the legions, right hands clasped together, an emblem of friendship. Their envoys, who had assumed a studied appearance of misery and distress, passed through the headquarters and the men's tents, and complaining now of their own wrongs, now of the rewards bestowed on the neighbouring states, and when they found the soldiers' ears open to their words, of the perils and insults to which the army itself was exposed, inflamed the passions of the troops. The legions were on the verge of mutiny, when Hordinius Flaccus ordered the envoys to depart, and to make their departure more secret, directed them to leave the camp by night. Hence arose a frightful rumour, many asserting that the envoys had been killed, and that, unless the soldiers provided their own safety, the next thing would be that the most energetic of the number, and those who had complained of their present condition, would be slaughtered under cover of night, and the rest of the army would know nothing of their fate. The legions then bound themselves by a secret agreement. Into this the auxiliary troops were admitted, at first objects of suspicion, from the idea that their infantry and cavalry were being concentrated in preparation for an attack on the legions, these troops soon became especially zealous in the scheme. The bad find it easier to agree for purposes of war than to live in harmony during peace. Yet it was to Galbert that the legions of Lower Germany took the oath of fidelity annually administered on the 1st of January. It was done, however, after long delay, and then only by a few voices from the foremost ranks, while the rest preserved an absolute silence, every one waiting for some bold demonstration from his neighbour, in obedience to that innate tendency of men which makes them quick to follow where they are slow to lead. And even in the various legions there was a difference of feeling. The soldiers of the first and the fifth were so mutinous that some of them threw stones at the images of Galba. The fifteenth and sixteenth legions ventured on nothing beyond uproar and threatening expressions. They were on the watch for something that might lead to an outbreak. In the upper army, however, the fourth and thirteenth legions, which were stationed in the same winter quarters, proceeded on this same first of January to break in pieces the images of Galba. The fourth legion being foremost, the eighteenth showing some reluctance, but soon joining with the rest. Not, however, to seem to throw off all the reverence for the empire, they sought to dignify their oath with the now obsolete names of the senate and people of Rome. Not a single legate or tribune exerted himself for Galba. Some, as is usual in a tumult, were even conspicuously active in mutiny, though no one delivered anything like a formal harangue or spoke from a tribunal. Indeed, there was as yet no one to be obliged by such services. Hodionius Flaccus, the consular legate, 
was present and witnessed this outrage, but he dared neither check the furious mutineers, nor keep the wavering to the duty, nor encourage the well-affected. Indolent and timid, he was reserved from guilt only by sloth. Four centurions of the eighteenth legion, Nonius Receptus, Donatius Valens, Romilius Marcellus, Calpurnius Repentinus, striving to protect the images of Galba, were swept away by rush of the soldiers and put in irons. After this, no one retained any sense of duty, any recollection of his late allegiance, but, as usually happens in mutinies, the sight of the majority became the sight of all. In the course of the night of the 1st of January, the standard-bearer of the 4th legion, coming to the colonia Agrippinensis, announced to Vitalius, who was then at dinner, the news that the 4th and 18th legions had thrown down the images of Galba, and had sworn allegiance to the senate and people of Rome. Such a form of oath appeared meaningless. It was determined to seize the doubtful fortune of the hour, and to offer an emperor to their choice. Vitalius sent envoys to the legions and their legates, who were to say that the army of Upper Germany had revolted from Galba, that it was consequently necessary for them either to make war on the revolters, or if they preferred peace and harmony, to create an emperor, and to words suggest that it would be less perilous to accept than to look for a chief. The nearest winter quarters were those of the First Legion, and Fabius Valens was the most energetic of the legates. This officer, in the course of the following day, entered the Colonia Agrippinensis with the cavalry of the legion and of the auxiliaries, and together with them saluted Vitalius as emperor. All the legions belonging to the same province followed his example with prodigious zeal, and the army of Upper Germany abandoned the specious names, the Senate and people of Rome, and on the 3rd of January declared for Vitalius. One could be sure that during those previous two days it had not really been the army of the state. The inhabitants of Colonia Agrippinensis, the Treveri, and the Lingonis, showed as much zeal as the army, making offers of personal service, of horses, of arms, and of money, according as each felt himself able to assist the cause by his own exertions, by his wealth, or by his talents. Nor was this done only by the leading men in the colonies or the camps, who had abundant means at hand, and might indulge great expectations in the event of victory. But whole companies, down to the very ranks, offered instead of money their rations, their belts, and the bosses which, richly decorated with silver, adorned their arms. So strong were the promptings from without, their own enthusiasm, and even the suggestions of avarice. Vitalius, after bestowing high commendation on the zeal of the soldiers, proceeded to distribute among Roman knights the offices of the imperial court usually held by freedmen. He paid the furlough fees to the centurions out of the imperial treasury, while in most instances he acquiesced in the fury of the soldiers who claimed for numerous executions, in some few he eluded it under the pretense of imprisoning the accused. Pompeius Propincius, procurator of Belgica, was immediately put to death. Julius Burdo, prefect of the German fleet, he contrived to withdraw from the scene of danger. The resentment of the army had been inflamed against this officer by the belief that it was he who had invented the charges and planned the treachery which had destroyed Capito. The memory of Capito was held in high favour, 
and with that enraged soldiery it was possible to slaughter in open day, but to pardon only by stealth. He was kept in prison, and only set at liberty after the victory of Vitalius, when the resentment of the soldiery had subsided. Meanwhile, by way of a victim, the centurion Crispinus was given up to them. This man had actually imbued his hands in the blood of Capito. Consequently, he was to those who cried for vengeance a more notorious criminal, and to him who punished a cheaper sacrifice. Julius Civilis, a man of commanding influence among the Batavi, was next rescued from like circumstances of peril, lest if that high-spirited nation should be alienated by his execution. There were indeed in the territory of the Lingonis eight Batavian cohorts, which formed the auxiliary force of the fourteenth legion, but which had, among the many dissensions of the time, withdrawn from it. A body of troops which, to whatever side they might incline, would, whether as allies or enemies, throw a vast weight into the scale. Vitalius ordered the centurions Nonius, Donatius, Romilius, and Calpurnius, of whom I have before spoken, to be executed. They had been convicted of the crime of fidelity, among rebels the worst of crimes. Now adherents soon declared themselves in Valerius Asiaticus, legate of the province of Belgica, whom Vitalius soon after made his son-in-law, and Junius Blasius, governor of Gallia Lugdunensis, who brought with him the Italian legion and the Taurine horse, which was stationed at Lugdunum. The armies of Raetia made no delay in at once joining Vitalius, and even in Britain there was no hesitation. Of that province, Trebellius Maximus was governor, a man whose sordid avarice made him an object of contempt and hatred to the army. His unpopularity was heightened by the efforts of Roscius Calius, the legate of the twentieth legion, who had long been on bad terms with him, and who now seized the opportunity of a civil war to break out into greater violence. Trebellius charged him with mutinous designs, and with disturbing the regularity of military discipline. Calius retorted on Trebellius the accusation of having plundered and impoverished the legions. Meanwhile, all obedience in the army was destroyed by these disgraceful quarrels between its commanders, and the feud rose to such a height that Trebellius was insulted even by the auxiliaries, and finding himself altogether isolated, as the infantry and cavalry sided with Calius, he fled for safety to Vitalius. Yet the province still enjoyed tranquillity though its consular governor had been driven from it. It was now ruled by the legate of the legions, who were equal as to lawful authority, though the audacity of Calius made him the more powerful. After the army of Britain had joined him, Vitalius, who had now a prodigious force and vast resources, determined that there should be two generals and two lines of march for the contemplated war. Fabius Valens was ordered to win over, if possible, or if they refuse his overtures, to ravage the provinces of Gaul and to invade Italy by way of the Cortian Alps, Caecina to take the nearer route, and to march down from the Pennine range. To Valence were entrusted the picked troops of the army of Lower Germany with the eagle of the 5th Legion and the auxiliary infantry and cavalry, to the number of 40,000 armed men. Caecina commanded 30,000 from Upper Germany the strength of his force being one legion, the twenty-first. 
Both had also some German auxiliaries, and from this source Vitalius, who was to follow with his whole military strength, completed his own forces. Wonderful was the contrast between the army and the emperor. The army was all eagerness. They cried out war, while Gaul yet wavered, and Spain hesitated. The winter, they said, the delays of a cowardly inaction must not stop us. We must invade Italy. We must seize the capital. In civil strife, where action is more needed than deliberation, nothing is safer than haste. Vitalius, on the contrary, was sunk in sloth, and anticipated the enjoyment of supreme power in indolent luxury and prodigal festivities. By midday, he was half intoxicated, and heavy with food. Yet the ardour and vigour of the soldiers themselves discharged all the duties of a general as well as if the emperor had been present to stimulate the energetic by hope and the indolent by fear. Ready to march and eager for action, they loudly demanded the signal for starting. The title of Germanicus was at once bestowed on Vitalius. That of Caesar he refused to accept, even after his victory. It was observed as a happy omen for Fabius' balance in the forces which he was conducting to the campaign, that on the very day on which they set out, an eagle moved with a gentle flight before the army, as it advanced, as if to guide it on its way. And for a long distance, so loudly did the soldiers shout of their joy, so calm and unterrified was the bird, that it was taken as no doubtful omen of great and successful achievements. The territory of the Treveri they entered, with all the security naturally felt among allies, but at Dividurum, a town of the Medio Matrosi, though they had been received with the most courteous hospitality, a sudden panic mastered them. In a moment they took up arms to massacre an innocent people, not for the sake of plunder or fight by the loss of spoil, but in a wild frenzy arising from causes so vague that it was very difficult to apply a remedy. Soothed at length by the entreaties of their general, they refrained from utterly destroying the town. Yet as many as four thousand human beings were slaughtered. Such an alarm was spread through Gaul, that as the army advanced, whole states, headed by the magistrates and with prayers on their lips, came forth to meet it, while the women and children lay prostrate along the roads, and all else that might appease an enemy's fury was offered, the war there was none to secure the boon of peace. Valens received the tidings of the murder of Galba and the accession of Otto, while he was in the country of the Lucai. The feelings of the soldiers were not seriously affected either with joy or alarm. They were intent on war. Gaul, however, ceased to hesitate. Otto and Vitalius it hated equally. Vitalius it also feared. The next territory was that of the Lingonis, who were loyal to Vitalius. The troops were kindly received, and they vied with each other in good behaviour. This happy state of things, however, was of short duration owing to the violence of the auxiliary infantry, which had detached itself, as before related, from the 14th legion, and had been incorporated by Valens with his army. First came angry words, then a brawl between the Batavi and the legionaries which, as the partialities of the soldier espoused, one or another of the parties was almost kindled into a battle, and would have been so, had not Valens, by punishing a few, reminded Batavi of the authority which they had now forgotten. 
Against the ADI, a pretext for war was sought in vain. That people, when ordered to furnish arms and money, voluntarily added a supply of provisions. What the ADI did for fear, the people of Lactum did with delight. Yet the Italian legions and the Toran horse were withdrawn. It was resolved that the eighteenth cohort should be left there, as it was at their usual winter quarters. Manlius Valens, legate of the Italian legion, though he had served the party well, was held in no honour by Vitalius. Fabius Valens had defamed him by secret charges, of which he knew nothing, publicly praising him all the while, that he might less suspect the treachery. The old feud between Lactanum and Vienna had been kindled afresh by the late war. They had inflicted many losses on each other so continuously and so savagely that they could not have been fighting only for Nero or Galba. Galba had made his displeasure the occasion for diverting into the imperial treasury the revenues of Lactanum, while he had treated Vienna with marked respect. Thence came rivalry and his like, and the two states, separated only by a river, were linked together by perpetual feud. Accordingly, the people of Lactanum began to work on the passions of individual soldiers, and to goad them into destroying Vienna, by reminding them how that people had besieged their colony, had abetted the attempt of Vindex, and had recently raised legions for Galba. After parading these pretexts for quarrel, they pointed out how vast would be the plunder. From secret encouragement they passed to open entreaty. Go, they said, to avenge us, and utterly destroy this home of Gallic rebellion. There all are foreigners and enemies. We are a Roman colony, a part of the Roman army, sharers in your successes and reverses. Fortune may declare against us, do not abandon us to an angry foe. By these and many similar arguments, they so wrought upon the troops, that even the legate and the leaders of the party did not think it possible to check their fury. But the people of Vienna, aware of their danger, assumed the veils and chaplets of suppliance, and, as the army approached, clasped the weapons, knees, and feet of the soldiers, and so turned them from their purpose. Valens also made each soldier a present of three hundred cessities. After that, the antiquity and rank of the colony prevailed, and the intercession of Valence, who charged them to respect the life and welfare of the inhabitants, received a favourable hearing. They were, however, publicly mulcted of their arms, and furnished the soldiers with all kinds of supplies from their private means. Report, however, has uniformly asserted that Valence himself was bought with a vast sum. Poor for many years and suddenly growing rich, he could but ill conceal the change in his fortunes, indulging without moderation the appetites which a protracted poverty had inflamed, and after a youth of indigence becoming prodigal in old age. The army then proceeded by slow marches through the territory of the Allobroges and Vacantii. The very length of each day's march, and the changes of encampment, being made a matter of traffic by the general, who concluded disgraceful bargains to the injury of the holders of land, and the magistrates of the different states, and used such menaces that at Lucas, a municipal town of the Vicontii, he was on the point of setting fire to the place, when a present of money soothed its rage. 
when money was not forthcoming, he was bought off by sacrifices to his lust. Thus he made his way to the Alps. Kaikina reveled more freely in plunder and bloodshed. His rested spirit had been provoked by the Helvetii, a Gallic race famous once for its warlike population, afterwards for the associations of its name. Of the murder of Galba they knew nothing, and they rejected the authority of Italius. The war originated in the rapacity and impatience of the twenty-first legion, who had seized some money sent to pay the garrison of a fortress, which the Helvetii had long held with their own troops, and at their own expense. The Helvetii, in their indignation, intercepted some letters written in the name of the army of Germany, which were on their way to the legions of Pannonia, and detained the centurion and some of his soldiers in custody. Kalkina, eager for war, hastened to punish every delinquency as it occurred before the offender could repent. Suddenly moving his camp, he ravaged a place which, during a long period of peace, had grown up into something like a town, and which was much resorted to as an agreeable watering-place. Dispatches were sent to the Rhetian auxiliaries, instructing them to attack the Alvitii in the rear, while the legion was engaging them in front. Bold before the danger came, and timid in the moment of peril, the Alvitii, though at the commencement of the movement they had chosen Claudius Severus for their leader, knew not how to use their arms, to keep their ranks, or to act in concert. A pitched battle with veteran troops would be destruction. A siege would be perilous with fortifications old and ruinous. On the one side was Caecina at the head of a powerful army. On the other were the auxiliary infantry and cavalry of Rhaetia, and youth of that province inured to arms and exercised in habits of warfare. All around were slaughter and devastation. Wandering to and fro between the two armies, the Helvetii threw aside their arms, and with a large proportion of wounded and stragglers fled for refuge to Mount Fucetius. They were immediately dislodged by the attack of some Thracian infantry. Closely pursued by the Germans and Rhaetians, they were cut down in the forest, and even in the hiding-places. Thousands were put to the sword, thousands more were sold into slavery. Every place having been completely destroyed, the army was marching in regular order on Aventicum, the capital town, when a deputation was sent to surrender the city. This surrender was accepted. Julius Alpinus, one of the principal men, was executed by Caecina, as having been the promoter of the war. All the rest he left to the mercy of severity of Vitalius. It is hard to say whether the envoys from Helvetia found the emperor or his army less merciful. Exterminate the race, was a cry of the soldiers, as they brandished their weapons, or shook their fists in the faces of the envoys. Even Vitalius himself did not refrain from threatening words and gestures, till at length Claudius Cossus, one of the Helvetian envoys, a man of well-known eloquence, but who then concealed the art of the orator under an assumption of alarm, and was therefore more effective, soothed the rage of the soldiers, who, like all multitudes, were liable to sudden impulses, and were now as inclined to pity as they had been extravagant in fury. Bursting into tears and praying with increasing earnestness for a milder sentence, 
they procured pardon and protection for the state. Kaikina, while halting for a few days in the Helvetian territory, till he could learn the decision of Vitalius, and at the same time make preparations for the passage of the Alps, received from Italy the good news that Silius' horse, which was quartered in the neighbourhood of Paedus, had sworn allegiance to Vitalius. They had served under him when he was proconsul in Africa, from which place Nero had soon afterwards brought them, intending to send them on before himself into Egypt, but had recalled them in consequence of the rebellion of Vindex. They were still in Italy, and now, at the instigation of their decurions, who knew nothing of Otto, but were bound to Vitalius, and who magnified the strength of the advancing legions, the fame of the German army, they joined the Vitalianists, and by way of a present to their new prince, they secured for him the strongest towns of the country north of the Pades, Mediolanum, Novaria, Iparadia, and Faselle. This Cagina had learned from themselves, aware that the widest part of Italy could not be held by such a force as a single squadron of cavalry, he sent on, in advance, the auxiliary infantry from Gaul, Lusitania, and Raetia, with the veteran troops from Germany and Patras' horse, while he made a brief halt to consider whether he should pass over the Raetian range into Noricum to attack Petronius, the procurator, who had collected some auxiliaries, and broken down the bridges over the rivers, and was thought to be faithful to Otto. Fearing, however, that he might lose the infantry and cavalry, which he had sent on in advance, and at the same time reflecting that more honour was to be gained by holding possession of Italy, and that, wherever the decisive conflict might take place, Noricum would be included among the other prizes of victory, he marched the reserves and the heavy infantry through the Pennine passes, while the Alps were still covered with the snows of winter. Meanwhile, Otto, to the surprise of all, was not sinking down into luxury and sloth. He deferred his pleasures, concealed his profligacy, and moulded his whole life to suit the dignity of empire. Men dreaded all the more virtues so false and vices so certain to return. Marius Celsus, consul-elect, whom he had rescued from the fury of the soldiers, by pretending to imprison him, he now ordered to be summoned to the capital. He sought to acquire a reputation for clemency by sparing a distinguished man opposed to his own party. Celsus pleaded guilty to the charge of faithful adherence to Galba, and even made a merit of such an example of fidelity. Otto did not treat him as a man to be pardoned, and, unwilling to blend with the grace of reconciliation, the memory of past hostility at once admitted him to his intimate friendship, and soon afterwards appointed him to be one of his generals. By some fatality, as it seemed, Celsus maintained also to Otto a fidelity as irreproachable as it was unfortunate. The escape of Celsus gratified the leading men in the state, was generally praised by the people, and did not displease even the soldiers, who could not but admire the virtue which provoked their anger. Then followed as great a burst of joy, though from a less worthy cause, when the destruction of Tigellinus was achieved. Sophonius Tigellinus, a man of obscure birth, steeped in infamy from his boyhood, and shamelessly profligate in his old age, finding vice to be as quick as road to such offices as a command of the watch and of the praetorian guard, 
and to other distinctions due to merit, went on to practice cruelty, rapacity, and all the crimes of mature years. He perverted Nero to every kind of atrocity, he even ventured on some acts without the emperor's knowledge, and ended by deserting and betraying him. Hence, there was no criminal whose doom was from opposite motives more importunately demanded, as well by those who hated Nero as by those who regretted him. During the reign of Galba, Tigalinus had been screened by the influence of Vinius, who alleged that he had saved his daughter, and doubtless he had preserved her life, not indeed out of mercy, when he had murdered so many, but to secure for himself a refuge for the future. For all the greatest villains, distrusting the present and dreading change, look for private friendship to shelter them from public detestation, caring not to be free from guilt, but only to ensure their turn in impunity. This enraged the people more than ever, the recent unpopularity of Phineas being superadded to their old hatred against the Calenus. They rushed from every part of the city into the palace and forum, and bursting into the circus and theatre, where the mob enjoyed special license, broke out into seditious clamours. At length, Tigalinus, having received at the springs of Sinuessa a message that his last hour was come, amid the embraces and caresses of his mistresses and other unseemly delays, cut his throat with a razor, and aggravated the disgrace of an infamous life by a tardy and ignominious death. End of Book One, Part Four